I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Giulio Boccaletti, is one of the world's foremost experts on the interface between geophysical and ecological science, world history, and economics as they pertain to water security. As a global consultant at McKinsey and Company, he worked on dozens of private, not-for-profit, and public sector projects across multiple industries, from health to finance, producing several public reports on key sustainability issues. Giulio later joined the Nature Conservancy, one of the largest conservation organizations in the world, first as its global managing director for water, then as its chief strategy officer. For his work on water, the World Economic Forum nominated him as a young global leader in 2014. He is the author of Water, a biography which has been translated into eight languages and was rated by The Economist as one of the best books of 2021. The book, which explores the 5,000-year history of the relationship between society and management of water on five continents, is the subject of today's interview. So, Julio, welcome to Delving In. Thank you for having me, Stuart. So, you've given an amazingly comprehensive treatment of a highly complex topic, and your resume is really awesome. Just like reading that is sort of like, I'm already impressed, <laughs> just you know, having put together that, that little bio. You give detailed accounts of how human societies, once they transitioned from hunter-gatherers to agriculturalists, have dealt with water and climate conditions in the ancient world, Mesopotamia, Egypt, China, the Maya, Greco-Roman, among others, as well as recent and contemporary examples in India and Pakistan, the Congo, the U.S., etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's a lot to cover here. Where there's no way we're going to get through it all in an hour. But my general outline for the talk is to first talk about general principles, then talk about water management in the ancient world, the limits of management, inevitable water disasters, the development of hydropower and inland water transportation, and challenges for the future. I, I don't think we're going to get to all of it, but if we can at least touch on all of it, that would be really wonderful. Right. So I'd like to start just to, to kind of, uh, as a springboard for the first part about general principles, to quote from your book. Today, Everyone operates under the illusion that water on the landscape is or should be nothing more than an inert backdrop on the stage of human events. That illusion is created because of the 45,000 structures taller than 15 meters that dam the rivers of the world, a number that grows to millions if all barrages, which is I think a kind of dam, barrages cluttering streams are counted. This enormous stock of infrastructure is capable of catching around 20% of the world's annual runoff, the water that collects in rivers and streams ac across all lands. Technology enthusiasts celebrate its achievement while environmentalists bemoan its impacts. Either way, it is the story of a technological emancipation from nature in which science and engineering have given humanity, for better or for worse, full control over its own destiny. So you really, uh, I think, capture very powerfully the idea of, well, first of all, the idea that water is so central. And everyone kind of knows that already, but I think you really capture a level of detail in, in that statement. The book is, um, as you suggested, it's a, it's a very comprehensive and long history, but it has a single purpose, which is to reveal to a modern reader, and particularly to readers in countries like the United States or Europe, for example, the true power of water on our landscapes, which is something that we're not really accustomed to. Up to our great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents, depending on how old one is, 
people would have waded a river on the way to work. Most people would have. And most people would have woken up in the morning, picked up a bucket and gone down to the stream to get water. The sense that water defined uh, daily life and defined the rhythms of uh, consumption and of work uh, is something that was with humanity ever since we decided to stand still, essentially, in the world of moving water, right? Ever since became, we became sedentary some 10,000 years ago. But over the last 100 years, we created that illusion that I was talking about in the quote that you just uh, read. And so this illusion of control that surrounds us makes most people unaware of just how much work is done to hold the force of water at bay, just how much investment is needed to replumb the landscape so that we don't have to wade a river on the way to work and we don't have to actually pick up a bucket and go down to the stream. We just open a tap and you know water just presents itself. And actually, most people don't even need to know where that water came from. In fact, they might not even care. It's just there, right? And so that illusion of control is a fundamental feature of our life as homo economicus as kind of the, you know, the people that live at the rhythm of industrialization and consumption. The reason it's important to reveal that connection behind the scenes, the force of water, is that that illusion is breaking. And that's, you know, the real motivation for writing such a comprehensive book, ultimately to hammer home a single important point, which is that for, you know, 9,100 years of the 10,000 years that separates us from when we became sedentary, we have wrestled with this giant force on the landscape, which has defined not just our infrastructure, but also our political institutions. And it's only in the last hundred years that we've created the environment where we don't have to think about it. And that's about to change. It's about to come back into our lives. Well, that was the purpose of the book. And it's interesting how in the book you only make very brief allusions to global warming. I mean, the allusions are powerful ones. Don't get me wrong, but but the book really is not specifically about global warming, except that it's in the, it's implied yeah. throughout the book. You know that that it's going to about to break down. That our control of water is about to be uh, forced out of our hands. That's, that's right, because I, I suppose the book, the global warming or the changing climate, that's caused by anthropogenic emissions is in the background. It's the reason why the performance of water on the landscape is changing. After all, droughts and floods are simply expressions of the climate system on the landscape. So if the climate system is changing, then you know it's inevitable that floods and, and droughts uh, change in nature and frequency and depth and so forth. And, on. and that's kind of what we're seeing all over the world. But the book is really about our own agency over those issues, right? So the, the camera's turned around. So much of the conversation about climate change is, is fixated on what's happening to the natural world. And of course, that's an important part of the story. But there's an equally important part of the story, which is that for thousands of years, we've managed climate, let alone climate change, by organizing ourselves, by transforming the landscape, but also by transforming our own relationships and institutions. And that's really where I wanted to put the emphasis here. You know, the recently there was a a very uh, tragic and dramatic flood in Pakistan, which features in the book in a couple of pages. And, and Pakistan, you know, went under because of a particularly strong monsoon coupled with a set of other other events. And, and as a result, you know, 30 million people were displaced and a couple of thousand people lost their lives uh, as uh, Sindh went underwater. But in the book, I talk about 
a similar event that happened only in 2010, when a similarly powerful flood and a powerful monsoon again uh, hit the country and then 20 million people uh, you know, were affected. Again, a couple thousand people died. Now, in the intervening 12 years between that event and the one that happened this year, it's not climate change that's responsible for failing yet again to manage this problem. It's the fact that for 12 years, nothing was done to invest in the systems that would have prevented that tragedy from happening again. That doesn't mean that climate change doesn't matter, but it does mean that we have agency, we have choices, and uh, you know we hope to hold our political systems to account to make sure that they invest in the landscape and in institutions to manage what's coming. Yeah, you give an even more dramatic example in your book about the the uh, Huai River. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. In China, the a tributary of the Yangtze, where 200,000 people drowned in their sleep. That's right. Yeah, that was part of the you know there's this uh, the the greatest uh, tragedy, natural disaster you've never heard of, which is the the great flooding of uh, 1931 in uh, China, where for a variety of coincidental events, you know, the Yangtze, a number of tributaries, and also part of the Yellow River Basin flooded. And estimates vary because nobody knows how many people were living there, let alone how many people died. But the estimates range from 400,000 victims to 4 million victims, right? Either way, it was a catastrophe of spectacular proportions. And one of the direct results of that particular event was the construction years later of Three Gorges Dam, which is what I start and end the book with, uh, which is the largest single piece of infrastructure on the planet. It's a vast, vast dam. It's 10 times Hoover Dam. This is a piece of piece of kit that's 28 million tons of concrete and holds back the, uh, the Yangtze and was put there first and foremost to protect downstream populations from the kind of flooding that happened in 1931. The events that I describe over and over in the book, these catastrophic events that happen, of course, they're expressions of a climate system and they're expressions of a vulnerable population in the face of a climate system, whether it's changing or whether it simply has a as of an extreme event. But either way, the purpose of the book is to turn the camera around and ask ourselves well, what we do about the fact that the conditions under which we're living are changing. Yeah, you also give two uh, very powerful examples of a possibly misguided attempt, or, or at least a misguided application of an intent to control water and to control the landscape with both Mao and Stalin, and that their their rapid uh, desire to rapidly modernize yeah. was done so uh, with so little regard for the consequences. That's right. I mean, I think that the the story of water, there's a long tradition in uh, both in the hydrological literature, but also political science literature, to talk about the role of um, water management in supporting despotic states. There's a thing called the hydraulic state. There was a fairly famous uh, sociologist called Carl Vogel who wrote in the 50s about what he called oriental despotism, which was a popularized version of what Marxists call the Asiatic mode of production. The fact that in many of these uh, uh, countries that have vast water resources and unruly rivers, it seems like there's some congruence between despotism and the management of water. And first Lenin and then Stalin in the Soviet Union and then Mao in China seems to represent 
that story in that they used water as an instrument of power, an instrument of control of the landscape to accelerate industrialization and uh, transform their countries, right? I mean, both uh, Mao and Stalin were taking populations and economies that were fundamentally agrarian and trying to accelerate the transition towards industrialization, and they were using rivers to do so, partly because at the time, up to the 1950s and 60s, rivers were the only scalable source of power electrical power there was no you know boilers were not really at the scale that we have today and so the only scalable force that could produce electricity at industrial scale was was uh, was that of rivers and so people often point to that and 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 in some ways that is also the origin of a strong resistance to large mammoth scale uh, infrastructure on rivers around the world the idea that this is accompanied by you know, a despotic state that's intervening top-down. Now, the reality is that the most successful hydraulic state on the planet, and probably in history, is the United States, not uh, Mao's China, nor uh, Stalin's Soviet Union. And arguably, the United States of the Progressive Era and the United States of the Roosevelt New Deal uh, was a legitimate government, making interventions, democratically uh, supported interventions into the landscape to transform to transform this landscape. Of course, errors were made, and with the uh, with the benefit of hindsight, we today judge those interventions harshly. But the reality is that they were incredibly successful in transforming, particularly the west of the United States, into a livable part of the country. I, I make a comparison between these two experiences because in from a technological perspective, they look like each other. Right. I mean, in fact, many American engineers went to China, went to Leninist Soviet Union to uh, to support the industrialization of those countries. You know, the the dam that is currently under threat on the Dnieper River in Ukraine that has been talked about in the news. The first version of that dam was designed by a man, a colonel of the Army Corps of Engineers, Colonel Cooper, who was the designer of the Moscow Shoals Dam on the Tennessee uh, River. So, you know, there was an enormous exchange of technology at the time, but the political premise on which those two kind of uh, systems of technology was deployed was very different. In uh, the Soviet Union, in China, it was the result of a, a despotic action, whereas in, uh, in, uh, in the United States, it was, uh, it was the result of a set of uh, programs that had been subject to elections, right? I mean, Roosevelt, the first time Roosevelt... Uh, uh, ran for office, he ran on the idea that he would build, that he would electrify rural areas of the United States by harnessing the power of rivers. And so to me, that's the kind of comparison that matters here. Right. So you have the electrification, the hydropower, and, and then you also have the ability to uh, irrigate large portions of the country that may not have been in, uh, in the United States, became the breadbasket of the world as, as a result. And you know, as much as people decry the um, need for artificial fertilizers to make all that happen, it seems like it was it enabled the expansion of population of huge populations, not just locally but internationally. It's, it's you could you could argue that it's one of the things that enabled the world population to exponentially grow. That's right. I mean, like everything in in the story of water and the story of our relationship with uh, the landscape, uh, it's. Uh, it's a story of nuance, right? And the double-edged uh, swords all over the place, right? There's always second-edged options. It, you know, the story of the, the frontier, the expansion of the Western frontier in America, which was done on the back of 
the re-engineering of the landscape was, of course, to the detriment of the populations that were already living there. I mean, so, you know, this is not, uh, you know, territory that wasn't inhabited, but it certainly wasn't conducive to the kind of agriculture that the colonizers that had European roots could have brought there, right? You couldn't go to California when John Wesley Powell was visiting in the 19th century and imagine growing food like you had done in Eastern Europe. Yeah, so, so the previous population in, in much of North America was nomad, nomadic or semi-nomadic, as opposed to the population in Central and South America, where they did do more, more water management, and the population was much bigger. I think you said there was like 60 million in parts of South America. I mean, it was a much, much different story, and it had all had to do with water. The, the, the water conditions, the initial conditions, not that they weren't taken advantage of, the initial conditions were such that they were not conducive to uh, the kind of water management. That's right. I mean, it's fair to say not all uh, Native American populations were uh, nomadic. There were also, I mean, there are structures. In the Midwest, mostly, and Southwest. And so, for example, it didn't support as as large a population as as, uh, it would be supported today. And so back to your question about the the sort of uh, the breadbasket story. So the United States, one of the things that happened as the United States replumbed its its uh, landscape is that indeed it became the breadbasket of the world. Even today, the United States has a productive capacity that's four times its population. The most sort of uh, appropriate comparison with antiquity is Egypt. Egypt was to the ancient world what America is today to the whole world. There was a time when Egypt could have fed maybe a quarter to half of the population of the world at the time. Of course, today, the Nile is not nearly sufficient to feed the 120 million Egyptians that live in the country. But now the United States plays that role for, for the whole world. And this has had profound both economic and geopolitical consequences. The United States has become the dominant power in the world, in part because it was able to feed Europe as it was in the throes of two world wars. It was able to kind of play geopolitics through the trade of commodities all over the place. And it took advantage of uh, an incredibly fortuitous geographical configuration. You know, some people in in the sort of geostrategic field talk about the inevitable empire, because it so happens that the United States has one of the largest fertile areas in the world, the Mississippi Valley, which is traversed by a perfect transport infrastructure, the the Mississippi River system, which covers 40% of the continental United States and is full of ports all over the place that allow it to then take and ship this uh, product all all over the world. And so there's an enormous economic advantage to the configuration of the states, which is actually not really available to almost anybody else. The rivers of Europe are not necessarily traversing its most uh, fertile areas. And certainly the Soviet Union didn't have this, right? All the water of the Soviet Union was in the north, and all of the fertile land was in the south, with one exception, by the way, which was the plains of Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine has, you know, the odd property of being a tiny United States in in geographic terms. It's a it's a very very fertile plain traversed by a river, the Dnieper River, uh, with enormous uh, production capacity, but on a scale much smaller, of course, than the United States. I'd, I'd like to return to to Egypt, so to speak. Because Egypt, as you mentioned, was the kind of breadbasket of the ancient world, but also I think it'd be really interesting to hear about what made it so ideal, not just in terms of you know the Nile for transport, but also the Nile as a uh, source of fertility of the soil. That's right. In fact, maybe that's the, the primary source of wealth for the, you know, Herodotus used to call Egypt the gift of the Nile. And he was talking about the fact that the Nile had these... Uh, 
extraordinary floods. It, you know, it's, it's where flood recession agriculture sort of uh, had its had its uh, peak. But had, the Nile is very long, and most of its water is uh, rainfall from the tropics, right? That then feeds the white and blue Nile that come down through Sudan and from Ethiopia, and then and then come in into e- Egypt proper over the cataracts and down into the Nile Valley. And because of that length, the timing of the floods is essentially perfect. Because it reaches the flood reaches in the in the spring and, and spreads across the the valley, and it was so you know and it brings all the sediment from uh, from upstream that is incredibly fertile and renews the soils every year, and so what ended up happening was that for quite some time you could essentially throw seeds in the fields and wait for them to grow. I mean it was that fertile you didn't have to almost do anything. Now, Egyptians then got good at, at uh, managing this flood. But what's important is that unlike irrigated agriculture that we're familiar with today, where you have to actually do quite a bit of work to move water from where it is to where you need it, right? So the purpose of irrigation systems in a place like the Mississippi Basin, for example. Or, or like the Rio Grande here. <laughs> or like the Rio Grande, even more so, is to actually move whatever water you have to those places where it's most needed. In the case of the Nile, really the problem was mostly to contain it and manage it and slow it down. The water would get to where you needed it. It was just a question of how rapidly it would move along the landscape and how much, how widely it would cover the soils. And so for a long time, Egypt was incredibly, uh, incredibly fertile because of this. And the water flooded at the right time also. I think that the timing was also huge. Water flooded at the right time. And then, you know, they, they essentially created an entire system that was not just about the production of cereals, but also the production of uh, horticultural products, because they would create these little levees to contain the floodwaters and let them rest there so that more sediment would drop down. And on the boundaries of those uh, containment pools, essentially, they would then grow vegetables and other things. So it it was a landscape that was essentially a vast garden, aided by the fact that, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in Egypt, in ancient Egypt, unlike other parts of the Mediterranean and Eastern world, think for example, Mesopotamia, the landscape wasn't divided up in lots of little city-states with walls that separated the population from the landscape. Egypt had this anomaly, partly because of the unifying power of the Nile, of being essentially one nation. So there was no separation between the city and the agricultural landscape, for example. Cities were not, you know, the Egypt protected its external boundaries, what today we would call national boundaries, even though the concept of nation wasn't exactly established, and cities, and, uh, and there was enormous porosity between the cities and the, and the agricultural system. And that allowed Egypt to operate as a single integrated market. So it was incredibly productive, it had an incredible flood. The river then offered also a powerful means of transportation, which then allowed you to move grains around and support people when they needed it. Then if you add on that the storage capacity of the state, the fact that you could then collect cereals for years of scarcity. In a dry climate where it's possible to do that. In a very dry climate where it's possible to do that, of course, yes. And in fact, I mean, and and with the kind of of grains that could be stored for a long time, right, which is not necessarily. So what did the Aswan Dam and other dams, the, the huge projects, I think it was in the 50s, what did that do to the fertility of the soil? Did that stop the silting of the soil? Well, it, it completely transformed the regime until the 1950s, until Nasser, right? So uh, Egypt is sort of protectorate of the British. You go through the war, eventually the Egyptian state is an independent state. And this is a time when two things, two important things happen. The first is 
this kind of independentist movement. This is the time of the uh, sort of third world emergence, right? The decolonization of uh, start of many countries of Africa. This is after India has become independent. And so people are starting to see the opportunity to leave behind the legacy of the empires, the European empires, and create a life for their own so independence. The development, the, the kind of central development model that was popular at the time was the American development model, right? People looked at the Tennessee Valley Authority, they looked at Hoover Dam, and they thought that is the way in which you take a country that's agrarian and poor and turn it into an economic superpower. And, you know, they thought that because the Americans told them so. Right? Truman had a thing called the fourth point strategy, which was the idea that you could essentially increase your influence in the world by exporting your experience. And so the world was full of traveling salesmen, essentially. It was full of Army Corps of Engineers and Bureau of Reclamation experts that would travel around bringing the American experience to the world, including to uh, places like Egypt. And in fact, the big dam on the Nile, the Nas you know, the, the thing that Nasser ultimately constructed, was inspired, was designed by somebody who had visited Tennessee Valley Authority and was inspired by that, uh, that project. That's that's kind of what's happening at the time. There's this kind of independent movement, and then there's the development project that becomes the archetype for the world. What it does is it turns the Nile into a river that you'd find in America, which it wasn't originally, right? So it stops being this flooded system where the productivity of the river is a function of the natural flood, and it turns into a canal. So the dam, Aswan High Aswan Dam, we're talking about the High Aswan Dam, there's a lower Aswan Dam, which the Brits built in 1904, that's a much lower masonry dam, which hadn't ha didn't have the same impact. But the High Aswan Dam creates what's today called uh, you know, Lake Nasser, which is a huge lake that contains two times the annual flow of the Nile. So it essentially stops the Nile in its tracks, and then below the dam, you know, the river's a canal. It's no longer a live river. It doesn't flood uh, with the cycles of rain. It simply, you know, is a continuous stream. And so you go from flood uh, recession agriculture to perennial agriculture and irrigation, much like you would have in the Western United States. The problem with that is that water is not the only thing you get from the, from the river. You also get sediments, nutrients, and, and um, you know, other things that you need. And so you have to shift from a self-contained agricultural system to an admittedly more productive, but also much more expensive agricultural system that requires fertilizers. You know, it's not a coincidence that the Aswan Dam is also a hydropower installation because you need a lot of electricity to produce fertilizer, right? And so this uh, completely changes the agricultural regime of the, of the country. But it was a symbol of the independence of, of you know, the new, newly independent Egypt. So if you had a time machine and could advise them, would you say to go, they should go forward with this project? Or would you say, no, no, this is not going to work out? <laughs> well, you know, hard to say. I mean, the thing is, it's, it's, it's two things. So one is, one of the things I try not to do in the book is to use too much benefit of hindsight. You know, so people make mistakes all the time. We're always trying to correct yesterday's mistakes, making new ones today that we'll only recognize in 10, 15 years. I mean, that's the nature of the dialectic relationship that we have with the environment. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that I would advise them also not to have dictators. You know, I would advise them also not to. Like I think the part book is that you know you can't really separate the question of the infrastructure and what the rivers look like and what the landscape looks like from the political institutions that enable them because the dam, Hoover Dam may look like uh, the Aswan Dam but the political context in which those two projects were made is very different 
you can judge technically you can judge both of them as mistakes today given what we know and what we care about also from an environmental perspective but they emerged out of very different political environments right and and so i think that the ex post judgment is always a difficult thing to say i will say the Aswan didn't solve egypt's problem because what then happened is that the demography exploded like everywhere in africa right so there are now 120 million people in egypt and egypt today has gone from you know in the ancient world it was the largest breadbasket of the region today is the largest single exporter of wheat in the world uh, it's in, it's entirely dependent on on uh, on importer yeah importer yeah yeah importer of wheat and people in egypt spend about 30% of their income on food and a large part of that is imported grains and so you know if that monumental investment was supposed to be the emancipation of the country from the powers of the world well it didn't do that yeah so let's talk about this interface between the water management and economics and political systems it's it's really really a prominent part of your book really interesting and one of the earliest examples you give is in the ancient uh, kind of biblical era that the of course egypt had this incredible uh, river system that allowed for a consolidation of power and a, a single kind of mindset of being a single country whereas nearby uh, canaan which is where the biblical narrative takes place was a much more impoverished kind of place uh, in terms of resources and that uh, they had to go to Egypt to eventually, I mean, Joseph and his family wind up in Egypt in order to, to eat. But you, you also talk about how in, in a situation of scarcity, it can, not necessarily, it's not deterministic, but it can encourage cooperation in order to survive. That's right. There's a, there's a fair, I mean, there's two things to say here. One is there's a fair amount of anthropological literature that suggests that that's the case, right? In conditions of scarcity, the most natural response is cooperation. So much depends. So it's so important to depend on each other when you don't have much that it's sort of uh, you know intuitively it, it suggests that it ought to encourage cooperation. There seems to be some evidence that that's the case. But then we also know that just the even cultural traits reflected this uh, this this context, right? We have these things called the Amarna letters, which are sort of the correspondence between rulers, various rulers in Canaan and and uh, and Egyptian pharaohs. And it's very clear that Egyptian pharaohs essentially assumed that they had a divine right and that people should do what they, you know, should serve them because that was essentially the order of things. It's very clear that, you know, the rulers of Canaan expected reciprocity of some kind. They, you know, this was some trade-off where, yes, I will give you my allegiance, but I am expecting something in return, right? There was some degree of, uh, of uh, cooperation applied there. And there's a fair amount of literature to suggest that this got metabolized in all sorts of you know, cultural traits and traditions. You, for example, even if you read through the Old Testament, there are countless examples of where people have to share water or refer to, you know, wells as uh, the property, common property, for example. And this then, you know, goes into Jewish law, which is one of the ways in which it then migrates uh, across the Mediterranean. So, you know, the conditions don't uniquely define or determine, as you said, the cultural response. But in the process, it certainly shapes it. And th there's a story you can tell ex post 
that suggests that they're quite close. Maybe the most powerful example that I try and make in the book, the book is is a, is a work of history, but not historiography, right? It's not, I'm not telling the story of history. I'm not telling the story for the purposes of illuminating history. I'm telling the story for the purpose of illuminating today. And so it's a, it has an agenda. And I spend quite a bit of time talking about the classical institutions, right? The Greek institutions of democracy and uh, constitute the early, earliest uh, constitutionalism, and then of course the state of Rome, because those are the the archetypes that then in the modern period become the reference point for all of our institutions, right? From the American constitution onwards. And even there, you can make the case that environmental conditions had an important role to play in in shaping the way in which, let's say, democracy in Athens uh, developed. In, in the Greek situation, I, I, if I understood it correctly, you have a water situation, which is kind of largely in independent city-states that have their own water systems and, and uh, rather than something that needed to be highly centralized. That's right. It's a, you know, the story of Attica in particular, but the story of Greece in general, of this, these karstic environments that are highly fragmented, mean that these uh, city-states are essentially sitting on a system of natural and artificial systems, small rivers, inlets, that allow them to operate independently of each other. This is not a place like the Euphrates where, you know, independent city-states are in fact all in line, one after the other, downstream from each other, having to manage the river together, right? That's not the situation in uh, in Greece. And even within the city-state, even within Attica, say, this, the sort of territory of, of a place like Athens, individual farmers are independent of each other because most of the production is rain-fed, not irrigated. And that very simple fact ends up having momentous consequences from a political perspective, because if you have independent agents, each of which is able to produce enough agricultural product to have surplus, and therefore able to buy himself or herself uh, uh, you know, weapons and heavy armor and so forth, and become a hoplite, which is kind of the defender of the Greek polis, suddenly you have independent economic actors who are militarily powerful, who are in, and therefore demand political agency in return. And that is the sort of essence of the reforms that first Solon and then Cleisthenes produce, the, so, you know, the reforms that we study in the history books that give us the first seed of democracy. Of course, that democracy had nothing to do with the democracy we talk about, you know, the inheritance of the 19th century. But, but in terms of the idea of the distributed power, that goes along with the distributed uh, access to water. And in fact, you could even map rainfall in Attica onto the political parties. We know that Athenian politics was divided in, in parties. There were the coastal parties, the parties of the mountains, the parties of the plains, and they had different wealth because the, product, the productivity of those landscapes was very different, because access to water was very different. So you, you can sort of map rainfall and politics on top of each other. Again, this is not an argument for saying that rainfall produced democracy, but many places in the eastern Mediterranean where the same type of rainfall didn't produce these kinds of institutions. But in the process of emancipating politically individuals, the shape it took was in part determined by resources. Right. So in, in Greece, you have this kind of um, situation that encourages in, in independence without necessarily requiring interdependence. Correct. Which is, di which is different than the Mesopotamia situation or ca Canaan. Yeah, really interesting. So th then, we, you know, if we can fast forward a little bit to the to 14th century Europe, 
I knew it was probably a miserable century already because of uh, the bubonic plague wiping out a third of Europe. I didn't realize until I read your book that also there were incredible floods and failed harvests and mass migrations and labor shortages, of course, from the plague and other reasons. But it was it sounds like it was a horrible time to live in Europe. That's right. I mean, I think that there's a fair amount. You have to remember that until the illusion of control that we created in the 20th century that I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation, human societies have always been very, very vulnerable to even small changes in uh, climates, uh, in the climate that they experience, right? And, and we know that over time, you know, one of the things we know is, for example, the sort of uh, late Roman period, the great imperial efflorescence of Rome corresponds to a particularly benign time of the Mediterranean climate. And similarly, we know that the 12th century crisis and the 14th century crisis, when you had the plague, correspond also to a reduction in uh, productivity. We know this from a variety of sources, partly paleoclimatological resources, that is, you know, people measure tree rings or they look at paleontological evidence, but we all know it also from architectural and historical uh, data. We have to remember these populations were far more vulnerable to these elements than we would ever experience today. But if you, you know, I worked, uh, I worked for many years in Ethiopia, the rural populations of Ethiopia are sort of as vulnerable today as, you know, Europeans of the 14th century would have been, right? And bear in mind, this year, we have 20 million people were starving in the Horn of Africa because of three consecutive droughts. So th th these problems haven't gone away. They simply have, don't interest Europe and the United States. And, and you point out in the book that the, that successive droughts may also have brought down the Roman Empire during a thousand years of existence. And it, well, it's possible. There are, there are academics, have, uh, have, uh, there's a little cottage industry of people trying to argue as to what exactly brought down the Roman Empire. And I think at last count, people have 137 different reasons why it came down. <laughs> if you examine many of those reasons, a lot of them have at their root a relationship with environmental conditions, right? So again, it's not a deterministic argument, but amongst the various things that happen, certainly that's, uh, that's part of it. But going back to the Middle Ages, those times of, of great hardship were also incredibly generative. This is a time when the large, the great sort of imperial and church institutions that gave universality to the European culture and to their claims on the world are in crisis. And uh, lots of things come out of that crisis. Uh, hardship, yes, uh, you know, loss of a large fraction of population, but also entrepreneurship. One of the results of the loss of uh, population is that there's an enormous shortage of labor, which encourages the mechanization of a number of processes, uh, particularly textile processes across Europe. And the source of power, yet again, is water. So that's when in Europe, in medieval Europe, a lot of water mills start uh, spreading um, across the continent. And then, of course, uh, the first uh, sort of modern, if you will, uh, Republican experiences emerge once again in Europe, right? It's it's uh, this time of great fragmentation, of great dependence on rivers, uh, leads a number of cities first in northern in northern Italy and then across the rest of the continent to experiment with self with uh, self government. And that's and that's the legacy of uh, of Roman law. That's a legacy of uh, of Roman law and and Roman literature. Yeah, it's kind of this. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's in fact it's the humanist legacy. Humanism is often thought of as a literary phenomenon, but in fact. You know, Petrarch and, and, and the likes, but in fact, it's the fishing out of the darkness of history of a body of culture, and particularly legal culture, 
that uh, that transforms Europe. You know, the, the Justinian Code, which is the summa, the sort of synthesis of Roman law that was last made by Justinian in the in the sixth century, disappears. Uh, with the last thing we know about it at that time is a letter from St. Gregory that talks about this thing. And then 400 years go by with nobody knowing where this document, this kind of set of laws is. And then it sort of gets fished out of history around the 11th century, uh, incidentally in my hometown of Bologna in Italy, which um, uh, ensures that I write about my hometown in the book. And, you know, it reintroduces in, in Europe after the years of Charlemagne and, you know, the Longobards in Italy and so forth on, a system of unprecedented lucidity and clarity on how you decide what on the landscape. And so suddenly all these rules appear that tell you how should a river be managed? What is a res publica, a republica, a property of the state? What is a property of the state? What is common property? What is private property? All these terms, all these laws and, and rules around how you, we govern our relationships suddenly emerges, re, is reintroduced, an enormous body of jurisprudence emerges, particularly around water, to manage water systems, you know, all these cities in northern Europe, in northern Italy, sit around a big river called the Po River, and they have all these problems and, you know, trade and taxation, who gets to tax water as it floats down the river, and uh, people come to Bologna to study, from all over Europe. A fellow called Vacarius shows up from uh, Oxford. He ends up being the first teacher of Roman law in, in Britain. And his teachings are what then shape the language that goes into Magna Carta, which is kind of the foundational document of common law uh, today. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the modern wonders, in particular, the Suez and Panama canals. I and mean, those are really probably two of the most incredible things that have ever been built by humans. That's right. And they also expanded the imagination of people in terms of what man could do on the planet. And the Suez Canal was a feat of uh, imagination and engineering. Turns out it was probably easier than people think in that you were essentially digging through sand to get from one side to the other. The child of Delice, who's a French uh, entrepreneur, who raised a bunch of money and uh, and managed to create the Suez Canal. Initially, the British didn't want to invest. They ended up becoming the owners of it, uh, you know, a few years later. But it was an incredible success story and showed that you could essentially re-engineer the landscape in service of a completely globalized economy. People forget that the second, you know, this is the 1850s we're talking about. The world was heading towards the level of globalization that's only been reached in the last 10, 15 years, right? It was the heyday of the liberal order, you know, under the auspices of the Royal Navy and, and the sort of British Empire. Yeah, if I could just make a, a just a, throw in a little point here. I mean, in ancient times, uh, drought could be just disaster locally. And we, we, humans didn't have the capacity to spread the, the risk the way we do now, where now the whole world can spread the risk. And not that we do it that well, <laughs> but theoretically we can. Well, it's it's a property of uh, integrated uh, trading systems. In fact, there have been trading systems like that in antiquity too. Arguably, the Roman Empire was such a thing. You know, Rome didn't have, despite the fact that people think that Rome is known for the aqueducts, as Monty Python usually reminds us. In fact, the Romans were mostly known for their, at the time, for their immense trading system across the Mediterranean, which connected different points of the empire, which produced rainfall 
fed agriculture, but it was wide enough and big enough and connected enough that if, say, grains in Spain failed, you still had the supply from Turkey, right? And so it was that integration. You can go even back in time and find that an example of that integration in Bronze Age and Mediterranean, where the Egyptians would bring grains to the, their enemies, the Hittites, when they were suffering a drought. So I think it's a property of integrated systems in the 19th century when the Swiss Canal happens, is, you know, this has reached for the first time global scale. Uh, never before had humanity been connected on a scale that spanned, uh, that spanned the globe. And the Suez Canal was proof that you could not only connect the world, but you could also engineer the speed at which you could connect the world, right? So it was a, a, an enormous transformation. That would then inspired the Panama Canal, which, of course, was a completely different business. Same guy, French, uh, the Lycée, who decided to try his hand at cutting the isthmus. Problem, of course, was that whereas the Suez was about cutting through sand, Panama was about cutting through rock. And he ran out of money and uh, ended up bankrupt. And that was sort of, in a way, the end of the private-led infrastructure investment. Because it turned out that the only entity that could step in and pick up the pieces and actually pull together a project that could be brought to the end was the American government. And it's that way that sort of the, you know, the Panama Canal then became a sort of, a, you know, an American project for, well, until the 1970s, until it was then given back to, to Panama. So, it, you know, the, the, from Suez, Suez was the peak of the belief in the private entrepreneur that could transform the landscape on behalf of society. It was the heyday of liberalism, of the liberalism of the, of this 19th century kind, right, of free markets, of uh, free trade that can solve any problem. And then, you know, a bit like today, and then, you know, the, the Panama Canal was the realization that, in fact, there's something qualitatively different about the transformation of the landscape done by the sovereign. Yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, point that you make there that uh, there was kind of waves of, of norms about how development should happen. Should it be done privately or should it be done by governments. And we seem to be going through a prolonged phase where the, the governments are, don't have the same level of, uh, I don't know if the word is respect, of trust, you know, it's to, for, for the government to embark on these massive projects. And yet uh, right. there are certain kinds of transformations that probably can't be done otherwise, including the current one. I mean, in order to transform to a non-carbon-based economy. That's right. And, and in a way, whilst uh, in the West, Governments for the last 40 years, following the sort of so-called Washington Consensus, have embraced the idea that most infrastructure, most projects can be can be done through marginal economics, just paid for at the margin by the consumer that pays for the use of the infrastructure that's built, and you can use mobile, you know, you can mobilize private capital. There are counterexamples to that today. China, of course, which has been the most successful plumber uh, on the planet over the last 20, 30 years is entirely uh, state-led, right? All the companies that do the bidding of China, both in China and abroad, are state-owned enterprises. And they're doing that with the full banking and uh, full credit of the sovereign, right? And, and that's what, you know, the United States did in the first half of the uh, of the 20th century. Of course, the, the Panama Canal, the sort of switch from Suez to the Panama Canal to the story of the progressive era is also a moment when another important thing happens because all through the 19th century, the problem of economic growth wasn't an issue, really. It was more about extracting resources and sharing the pie. But the question of 
can we build a bigger pie that's beyond the sort of resources that are available on the planet? It wasn't really a thing because most of the resources were in the hands of wealthy classes and very few people had political agency. The First World War and particularly the Second World War created an enormous wave of political emancipation. Many, many more people vote. Many, many more people participate in political processes. Suddenly, the end point of a national project is not just what a few people have decided. It has to be broadly supported. And that means that you need to share the wealth. And in order to share the wealth, you need to grow the wealth. And so the 20th century becomes a century of growth uh, as a political objective. And in that project, then water plays a very important role because water is the way in which you grow the amount of food that you can produce. It's the way in which you industrialize because it's the primary source of electric power, as we said earlier. And it's also a means of connecting many markets. Yeah, I'm wondering with this last segment of um, maybe 10 minutes, if we could talk about, about global warming. And, and, and first, let's talk about, it's, your book is not a physics book, but you do talk about the, the physics of water as an amplifier in the atmosphere. And I think that was actually a very interesting point, that it's not just a concentration of CO2, which is minuscule, but it's amplification by the water cycle. That's right. So uh, that's right. I'm a you know, climate scientist by training. I'm a physicist. That's my sort of uh, first uh, love and background. And it can be endlessly fascinating, right? So what we've done over the course of industrialization is inject a certain amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It's simply the carbon dioxide that was there millions and millions of years ago, long before we were around, that was accumulated in fossil fuel reservoirs. And we're putting it back into the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is a funny molecule. It's uh, sort of the bent molecule, and, and it has uh, interesting radiative properties in that it's essentially entirely transparent to uh, visible light, but it's very opaque to particular frequencies in, in the infrared, so in heat. So it allows light to come through, but then it acts as a blanket uh, preventing infrared radiation, that is heat, radiant heat, to go out of the planet. That's kind of banal. I mean, it's, you know, one physical no one. Now, what's interesting, though, is that the atmosphere is full of water vapor. And water vapor is also uh, a greenhouse gas. Uh, it's transparent. As you know, if you look at a boiling pot, it's transparent to visible light, but it's equally powerfully uh, opaque to uh, radiant heat. And in fact, it's even more than carbon dioxide. But whereas carbon dioxide is essentially the content is essentially controlled by, you know, the respiration of plants and our additions through burning of fossil fuels, the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere is controlled by temperature. Those of us who've taken, you know, a physics class in, uh, in high school remember the famous Clausius-Clapeyron equation that says that the amount of partial pressure of uh, water, of water vapor, is proportional to the exponential of the temperature. So a small change in temperature can have an enormous impact on the amount of water vapor that can be in the atmosphere for every degree. Yeah, you point out that it, for every degree of temperature, it's 7% more water, and which so is really more, incredible. 7% more water. And so you have this, uh, what's called water vapor feedback. So you put a bit of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, that heats up the, water, the atmosphere a little bit and makes the planet a little, more, a little warmer. But that additional warmth then gets amplified by the fact that that, that little bit more the little higher temperature then allows more water vapor to be absorbed by the atmosphere that increase the opacity of the atmosphere further thus increasing the temperature further thus leading to 
a further amount of water. So it is a complicated process. If, if that were the only thing happening, of course, you'd have a runaway effect. That's not the only process that goes on. Clouds appear, all sorts of other things happen. But we know that the water vapor feedback is what makes a potentially problematic issue uh, turn it into a potentially catastrophic issue. So I know in, in your work, you're dealing with this fairly directly. I mean, what, what's the uh, kind of the basis of your work in, in uh, trying to address climate change? Well, for uh, several years, I was a practicing climate scientist. I you know, was a theoretician, but did climate models and, and ran it. And still to this day, I'm on the board of a on scientific board of, a, of the principal climate modeling climate institute in, in Italy, where we do simulations, IPCC simulations for the climate system. And so, you know, we run long-term models that that look at the impact of anthropogenic uh, emissions on the climate. We look at seasonal changes in seasonal behavior of the climate, intra-seasonal, long-term changes, and so forth on. But one of the things that, so with my scientific hat, the climate system is an infinitely interesting scientific object. And so part of my interests are, you know, scientific, understanding how this thing behaves. And we, we know a lot about it. We don't know everything. And so there's still a lot of science to be done. But part of what I'm interested in, and been interested in with this book, but I've been interested for the last 15, 20 years in my work on the ground, has been to engage decision makers, both in the public sector and the private sector, with the question of, well, what do we do now? And for many years, I think the most of the energy was an energy of the discussion, the energy and discussion was around mitigation, around trying to reduce the amount of carbon that goes into the atmosphere. And that's still a critical thing to do. We, you know, I don't think we can afford to have, uh, you know, the planet that we had, uh, that dinosaurs had 200 million years ago. But we also know that at this point, we're committed to a certain amount of change. Whether we will be able to maintain, keep it below two degrees on average on the planet or further up is remains to be seen, we'll find out. But either way, it means profound transformations to our landscape. See, sometimes people think, oh, well, two degrees, that's not very much. But that change is not uniform, right? So for example, Italy, we know from both simulations and empirical evidence at this point, that is far more sensitive than the rest of the Northern Hemisphere. So yeah, and Europe is far more sensitive than the rest of the Northern Hemisphere. So if uh, the Northern Hemisphere heats up by you know one to two degrees europe probably heats up by more and italy in the middle of the mediterranean might heat up by two to four degrees now that means substantially less rain in the summer may mean uh, you know much less predictable snowfall in the winter and because most of our economies because of this sort of construction of all this infrastructure that we talked about are carefully calibrated on the climate conditions of the last hundred years right we dimensioned everything on the back of our experience we built dams, built levees, built infrastructure, dimensioned on what we knew had happened over the previous hundred years. Well, given that that statistic is now changing, we will probably have to invest in the landscape to change our infrastructure and institutions to adjust, you know, what's called adaptation. So that's a real focus of my work is how do we adapt? And it turns out a lot of it has to do with how we manage water. Yeah, so Julia, do you think we're going to have to uh, return to state-sponsored large projects, you know, that w as opposed to relying only on the market? Well, I think we'll have to return, first of all, to talking about it in political terms. This, at the end of the day, is about what you want to see when you look out of the window, right? So what does the landscape look like? 
that's the first discussion, the first choice that we have to make. If we imagine that what's what's going to happen out there is that we just keep everything fixed, all we have to do is debate who delivers some piece of infrastructure such that everything doesn't change, then we're deluded. So that's not what we're going to propose. And in fact, that's the problem that we have in places like California, for example. Problem is we need to transform our agricultural systems. We need to change the way in which we manage the landscape, our forests, right? So it's going to look different. And that's about identity. It's about our home. And it's fundamentally a political discussion. Once you put that into the debate, today that doesn't happen, right? I mean, Roosevelt was elected on a platform that talked about how he would modify the rivers of the country. That doesn't happen today. People are not talking about that in those terms, in, in terms that connect transformation of the landscape to our future, to our economic and social future. Once you start that conversation, then you get at some point to the question of what institutions and what infrastructure do you need. It's not just about hard infrastructure. We know, for example, that you can, even in, in New Mexico, the Rio Grande, you know, if you could, if you could manage forests better to decrease the impact of fires, you probably need less water infrastructure downstream because the amount of ash that goes into the river, like the Rio Grande, for example, is enormous when you allow fires to burn hot, like they've done in the last few years, right? But if you manage the landscape differently, if you thin the forests and restore them ecologically, we know that that has an impact on the amount of infrastructure that you might need to correct a problem. And so this is never just a conversation about infrastructure. It's always a conversation about infrastructure, about the landscape, about our institutions, and about who decides, who gets to decide what it all looks like. Once you have that, then it may be, it may be that in some cases you'll need the state to intervene once again. We've gotten used to the state being mostly out of managing the landscape with hard infrastructure because we built so much of it in the first half of the 20th century. But we also know that that infrastructure has deteriorated rapidly. Most infrastructure in the United States is old and a lot of it isn't functioning very well. And the private sector is not going to be able to deliver those investments because the business case is not there. It's just like an interstate highway. is not There has no business case. Nobody would have built the interstate highway if the problem was how do I make a return on that investment. But it's obvious that having the interstate highway transformed America. It's the same for many of these investments. You need a, you need a collective underwriting. On that note, Julio, I think we're, we're out of time. But thank you so much for coming on to Delving In from, from London, where it's in the afternoon now. Pleasure. Giulio Boccoletti, one of the world's foremost experts on the interface between geophysical and ecological science, world history and economics as pertaining to water security, and the recent author of Water, a Biography. So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thank you, Stuart. It was a pleasure. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.